The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon and or evening, depending on where you are. This is Joe Schuldenrein with a, another edition of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's program is on a topic that we have discussed several times before but one that never ceases to fascinate, especially uh, to folks who are interested in desert environments and prehistory. And we are talking about the uh, southwestern U.S. and uh, specifically, in this case, the archaeology of the famous Chaco Canyon area in New Mexico. My guest today is Dr. Adam Watson, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the American American Museum of Natural History in New York City and has been engaged in a variety of intensive investigations in that part of the world focusing on traditional relationships in society and subsistence as well as issues that archaeologists have been discussing for quite a while and developing uh, tremendous inroads into, and that is specifically the relationship between landscape, environmental change, and prehistoric social organizations. Um, I want to welcome Adam Watson to the program. Nice to have you. Thanks, Joe. Pleasure to be here. So why don't you get us started? I mean, you're obviously a younger scholar getting uh, your feet on the ground with uh, in, in our profession. I would like to know what brings you into, what brought you into investigations of Southwestern prehistory, how you got started, and how your uh, research took hold. Great. Uh, thanks. Uh, sure. I, I think, um, I guess I should begin by saying that you know, I think what pulled me into archaeology in the first place was, or anthropological archaeology, I should say, is um, that a major goal um, is to document the myriad ways that complex societies around the world emerged, expanded, and sometimes declined. Um, there's this uh, this beautiful analogy, I, I think, that was first posed by Nicholas David and Judy Sterner, of which I'm very fond, and that is where they, they compare the period following... Um, the independent development of agriculture and sedentism around the world to the Cambrian explosion, to the Burgess Shale fossils that Stephen Jay Gould once talked about. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that life diversified greatly 
in that relatively short period of time and was subsequently winnowed down over time. There was a life was experimenting with all of these different forms, body forms, life forms, subsistence forms. Um, it became much less diverse and it, down to what we see today. Um, and so the analogy goes that following the emergence of agriculture and sedentism, past societal forms were likely much more diverse than those that have been documented in the more recent past, you know, with European explorations, for instance. Um, and so this is what really pulled me into archaeology. I, I began by focusing uh, really in Southwest Asia on the Fertile Crescent. I worked at sites like Chital Hayuk uh, and on sites, uh, assemblages from sites in Western Iran from the Neolithic period. Um, and what I, you know, what I was really interested in is the social changes that go along um, with with people settling down and beginning to farm. Uh, that we do see, to a large extent, um, in many cases, the emergence. Of, of hierarchy in society, um, different kinds of social differentiation, complexity, um, craft specialization, all of these things that we tend to get wrapped up in what we call complex societies, it really uh, pulled me in. Uh, and this was back in the sort of the around 2004, 2005. And this was, although I was planning to work in the field in Iran at the time, um, things very quickly, uh, you know, went south and it became not the best place to work uh, for a young archaeologist. Um, and so I, I, I had an opportunity to work on an excavation run by archaeologists uh, Patty Crown and Chip Wills from the New University of New Mexico out at Chaco Canyon. Um, and I was pretty much hooked after that first field season. You know, you raise um, a very, very interesting issue here, and one that I think is of relevance, especially to our professional audience, and I wanna, don't want to concentrate too much on them. But uh, certainly to bring together two very uh, interesting sort of cogenerative tendencies. First of all is the one where I, I think you very, very accurately pointed out the turning point of complex societies and the entire network of sedentism and the uh, complex of adaptive strategies that occur sort of almost simultaneously in several areas. And before you had even mentioned working in, in Mesopotamia, it immediately struck me that your work in the Southwest sort of mirrors a parallel development in the Middle East and in the Fertile Crescent where third millennium BC, all of a sudden you get these revolutionary changes that uh, certainly merge uh, complex societies, the alignments of river systems, uh, subsistence patterns that are all of a sudden centralized and linked and trade and trade networks emerging, and you're carrying it on to the southwest. That's one thing. The second thing, of course, and I think this is one that, that I certainly want to get your perspective on, and uh, maybe we should save that one for later, but, but, but the fact of the matter is that a lot of people who have been working on these complex problems in the Middle East find that this is not a very safe place to do this type of work anymore. And, and going back to North America and places like that m makes it a little bit easier to study these problems in a laboratory that's not necessarily threatened, threatened by total collapse around you. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Um, absolutely. So I guess um, I could maybe address it, unless you'd like to talk about it later. I think I would address your second point first and say that I've definitely seen that. Um, I've many close friends and colleagues who have worked or work in the Near East and, you know, around the time period of 2005 to 2007, you know, Syria was one of the ideal places to be conducting research. Um, and, 
for multiple reasons. Um, today, that's really not the case. Um, and so, I, and I think the issue there too is that, um, you know, f- for a number of reasons, that that the political climate can change fairly rapidly too, and, and uh, cause a halt um, to any potential long-term project. Uh, I guess to address your first point, if I may, um, and that is shifting my focus to the Southwest. You know, the way I approach archaeology is that I look at these different um, locales, these different um, instances in, in, in history as case studies, as ways that we can compare and contrast the way societies develop in different parts of the world under different um, environmental conditions. Um, and I really think that Chaco Canyon, um, as, as you and, and I'm sure many of your listeners are aware, Chaco Canyon is still hotly debated about the nature of, the, of, of hierarchy in the canyon. Was it, was it a complex society or was this something that was really achieved through a certain level of communitas and cooperation. Um, and, um, you know, and for me, I think that's what, what makes Chaco such a great and important case study and why people should care about Chaco Canyon. Well, it sort of encapsulizes a lot of the developments, environmental subsistence, um, mm-hmm. transformative societies, successions and societies, hierarchies, a- in a place that uh, research really has been ongoing for a long time. Why don't you give us a little bit of the background on the historical uh, baselines of Chaco prehistory and how that work was done? Because it goes back a very long time. Yes. Uh, so I guess the, the archaeological record in Chaco is, is remarkable for a number of reasons. I mean, you have these these massive freestanding masonry pueblos. Um, in, in many ways, they're as impressive in scale as a medieval castle. Some of them, you know, three to six hundred rooms, four and five stories even. Um, and these these required the quarrying of literally tons of stone, the harvest and transport of more than 200,000 trees from montane forests about 40 to 50 miles distance. Um, Chaco and its, you know, and, and, and the Chaco Corps involved road building, a network, um, you know, many of these roads are 8 to 10 meters in width, some of them extending, you know, as, or if you were to add all the roads up together, estimates are that they're about 250 miles worth of roads. Um, they, as you mentioned, they, they exhibited sophisticated water control, um, they were pretty adept astronomers in Chaco, uh, and of course, there's the the skilled crafting of ornaments and uh, like like ceramics, turquoise, jet, shell, and um, beautiful basketry that we now have in museum collections around the world. Um, and it's very clear that they engaged in very long distance trade relationships. Um, and really, what we see in terms of the Chaco development, although there's a, there's a sizable and long basket maker tree occupation of the canyon, we see things really take off. Uh, generally, uh, accepted dates are from about 850 A.D. Um, to about 1040, have what's called the early Benito phase, uh, and then it shifts into the classic Benito phase where we see a real explosion in the construction of these, these large sites, these great houses in Chaco, and that extends more or less into about 1100, 1110, uh, and then we enter the late Benito phase where we start to see maybe some kind of reorganization of, of Chaco's social structure. We, we see the, the advent of, uh, of new trade ties, tr- new um, uh, construction methods in the great houses. Uh, and this lasts until about 1140 when we see some very sustained uh, and severe droughts uh, that seem to really put a damper on it. 
And, of course, one of the big questions remaining is that um, through the 1000s we certainly saw droughts, and some of them are pretty, um, were pretty large in scale, and, and Chaco sort of um, continued on. And so the question is why did, you know, if, it, if this was, Chaco was at all environmentally driven, why did it sustain itself throughout these earlier droughts only to succumb possibly around, eight, eight, uh, excuse me, 1140? Um, if I may to talk a little bit about the archaeology um, that's been done over the last uh, century and a quarter, um, what we really saw were the first expeditions um, geared towards the archaeology of the canyon really began in 1896. Uh, and this was led by the American Museum of Natural History and focused on one site, uh, Pueblo Benito, from, again, from 1896 right. to 1901. Mm-hmm. They excavated um, close to 200 rooms, uh, several kivas, and this was done under the direction of George Pepper um, and, and Richard Wetherill. And then there were some other small-scale projects. In, the, in 1897, Warren K. Moorhead from Phillips Andover came out and excavated in a couple rooms. Uh, then in 1916, Nels Nelson, again from the American Museum, um, did some testing in the, the east and west refuse mounts in front of Pueblo Benito. Um, and then another large-scale expedition uh, ran from 1920 to 1907, and that was led by Neil Judd uh, through the Smithsonian Institution right. um, and then the, the National Geographic Society. Uh, and then since then, the, you know, there was the Chaco Project in the 1970s, a real sort of modern excavation in the canyon as na- under the National Park Service. And then more recently, uh, again, Patricia Crown and, and Chip Wills have led an excavation there. It went from about 2005 to 2009. Uh, and this really uh, focused on the, the refuse mounds in front of Benito. Right, and, and, and I think that's very important for people to understand because one of the advantages of looking at the trajectory of Chaco Canyon uh, academic study and research is that we can change, we can witness the mental templates that archaeologists have adopted through progressive knowledge of what archaeology is all about and how it's changed. And certainly I would say that the discoveries in the early days prior to Neil Judd were uh, more sort of digging stuff up to see what there is and that Mm -hmm. the more synthetic driving uh, perspective was created somewhere in the late 40s or, or, or 1950s where uh, sort of putting it together and, and sort of adopting, as what you said earlier, an anthropological pe- perspective to the archaeology became more and more a part of, of what it was. Why don't you tell the audience, especially the public, how these perspectives have changed and how our understanding of Chaco has changed, not only with the number of finds that are made, but also with the methodologies that archaeologists have used to sort of group their findings and change their interpretations. Sure. Now that's, you bring up a very good point, and, and certainly the the explanatory models to 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 cover or account for the the cultural trajectory that we see in Chaco have changed uh, pretty dramatically um, over the last century or so. Um, and I would I would say too that that many of them, you know even though they may fall out of favor, there are still a number of archaeologists that might sympathize with some of these earlier models. Uh, really, the first and earliest explanatory model um, to account for Chaco came from Clyde Cluckon. Right. And essentially, he was trying to account for the differences that he saw in the canyon, which, were, which are, again, are dramatic between great house uh, occupations and these small sites, these much smaller pueblos that look like they may have been one to two, maybe three families inhabiting a particular rincon or area of the canyon. 
And his interpretation was that what it really reflected was a multi-ethnic community, that you had um, maybe different social groups, that maybe one had been in the Kenyan first and another one arrived later, um, and that that was how you accounted for differences in life ways in Chaco. Um, mm-hmm. And this was an idea that really, um, I think, had a, a lot of staying power for, for many decades. Um, archaeologists like Gordon Vivian, who worked for the Park Service, and his later his son, Gwyn Vivian, um, were strong proponents of this sort of multi-ethnic or dual-ethnic model. Um, but as we entered, really, the, the new archaeology period of the 1960s um, and the rise of, of a focus on what often are called chiefdoms, for lack of a better term, um, people began to sort of understand or try to understand Chaco and, and perhaps test it as, as a potential chiefdom uh, polity. Um, and one of the key attributes of a chiefdom for many archaeologists is that it has a, a redistributive function, and that is it serves as a, as a center place as a locus from which um, supplies from surrounding areas can be consolidated, centralized, and then redistributed to account for perhaps environmental shortfalls or, you know, in rain or harvests elsewhere within the sphere. Um, and so when the Chaco project began in the 1970s, they really took this up um, as the main model that they wanted to test. Was Chaco a, redistri- a redistributive center? Um, and so for this reason, they selected um, a, a great house on top of North Mesa uh, at which a number of Chacoan roads converged. And they thought if there was going to be a site that screamed redistribution, it was going to be this site of Pueblo Alto. Um, they spent um, several years excavating the site, um, excavated, I think, around 5 to 10% of the site uh, and put some trenches into the refuse mounds at Pueblo Alto. And to their surprise, they didn't find a lot of, of remains that suggested that it was a major redistributive center. That they didn't find um, massive quantities of, of goods from around the San Juan Basin or even outside of the San Juan Basin into, into the larger southwest region. Um, but they did find uh, something they found striking in the refuse mounds at Alto at the time, and that was based on their estimates what seemed to be a very large number of ceramic vessels, an unusual number of ceramic vessels being smashed or deposited in these refuse mounds. Um, in addition, archaeologists on the project, uh, although there was disagreement within the team, uh, some believe that they actually also saw evidence in the faunal remains, that is the animal remains that were excavated out, that suggested feasting behavior or periodic, um, periodic provisioning on a large scale to feed people. Uh, and so this led them uh, and led to the rise of what's often called the pilgrimage fair model. For and we will, we will get back with that issue after these words. We have to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with our guest, Dr. Adam Watson. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. 
If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. My guest today is uh, Dr. Adam Watson, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the American Museum of Natural History. And we are discussing uh, Chaco Canyon, a prehistoric site, one of the major prehistoric sites in uh, North America, in the American Southwest, New Mexico. And uh, we had been talking about the long-term history of archaeological research in Chaco Canyon and how that focus has changed. And, of course, when you're looking at archaeology, one of the major periods of flux during in, in our profession occurred in the late 1960s and early 1970s when anthropological archaeology took a major foothold in our profession and we were starting to look at sites as part of networks, especially sites that were complex societies and part of systemic organizations and social nodes in particular regions and areas. And Adam had mentioned that uh, Chaco was beginning to be viewed as a redistribution center. Uh, Adam, why don't you explain that concept to our public so that they understand exactly what that means in terms of understanding the development of the site and the environment in which it occurred? Sure. So um, I guess from from an anthropological standpoint, um, again, one of the the major um, attributes of of what's often called a chiefdom level society, again, for lack of a better term, uh, is this idea that, um, that leaders within this society weren't necessarily, they, they, I guess, consolidated or maintained their power um, in part um, by serving as sort of the, the manager or the organizer of, of this redistribution center. And the reason this seems to make so, so much sense 
in the San Juan Basin and in Chaco Canyon is that, uh, first, Chaco Canyon has, is quite literally at the heart of the San Juan Basin. It's right in the middle. Um, we have good evidence that there were societies or, um, you know, throughout the San Juan Basin all along the margins, the, the, the Chusca Mountains to the west. You have the Zuni and San Mateo Mountains to the south, the Jemez Range to the east, and then, of course, the La Plata area to the north up along the Colorado, which is now the Colorado border. Um, the idea was that Chaco served as a central node for all of the, the groups living throughout this region. And this is important in a place like Chaco where rainfall can be unpredictable. And, th- and this is the case for the Southwest as a whole, you know, especially during the monsoon season in the summer from, you know, say about July through August in the Southwest. This is all important rainfall that's so critical um, to maize agriculture. It's important, um, I should say, that this, this rainfall is, is very unpredictable, both spatially and temporally. So you could see a rainstorm coming uh, and, and just hoping against hope that this rain, this, this particular rain shower was going to hit your, your cornfield. Um, and the idea is that if for some reason you just struck out in a particular season and your, your corn didn't get the, the amount of water it needed, the hope would be that there was someone else who planted elsewhere um, that actually did receive adequate rainfall and that by consolidating um, these goods, these foods, into uh, at a redistribution center, um, groups could convene and maybe trade in other goods that other gr- that other groups were lacking in, and uh, and possibly redistribute uh, the wealth essentially, so that people who were less fortunate in a particular year um, would actually be able to to feed their families through the coming year. Um, and the idea here is that this serves is, is kind of a buffer um, and, and a certain reciprocity, reciprocity, a generalized reciprocity that these different groups could count on. So how do you think that this reciprocity resulted in sort of the coalescence of groups and the understanding uh, environmentally and perceptually that subsistence patterns were linked um, amongst larger groups and that because of the vicissitudes of, uh, and, and the unpredictability of rainfall patterns and climatics that there was sort of a mentality of, uh, for lack of a better word, we're all in this together and we have to understand that our futures and our productivity and subsistence spaces are essentially integrated. Yeah, I think that's an, that's a, an excellent question. I mean, I, I think... Um, there may be different explanations for, for why different groups, particularly if they're not speaking the same language, might come together and cooperate. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, one, one argument that, that I found particularly compelling is that we have to keep in mind that there's, there's very likely um, all kinds of relationships between these groups that might come together. And certainly we see um, this pattern is suggested by the, the the, the basket maker period that precedes the rise of Chaco, and that is where groups seem to be coming together um, at certain times of the year or maybe um, every few years. Um, and that what, you know, what may be happening during these periods is that people are, are establishing marriage alliances. It could be that you have um, males or females are marrying into different social groups. And what that does is really strengthen the ties between these groups. So there would be increased incentive to support uh, and, and redistribute um, your food if you had a particularly good year, if, it, if you knew that it was going to ensure the survival of your daughter and, and potential grandchildren in a neighboring or a group on, a, on another part of the San Juan Basin. Uh, and for me, the sort of kinship ties, I think, are particularly um, compelling. 
I guess that's one of the really major questions that, that we really need to try to address. Can we get a, a stronger focus on how these kinship ties were developed? Or is it real? Is the evidence still true too fragmentary, and our methodology is still not quite up to snuff that we can actually set up little networks between various prehistoric groups that interacted more or less with one another? Or is that are, are we too far away from that at this point still? Um, I, I don't think we're too far away from it. I think um, one strategy to addressing this is. Um, has come from, and I wouldn't say necessarily in terms of kinship, but certainly looking at the strength of network ties, has come from the archaeologist Barbara Mills's work at the University of Arizona, uh, and she's done, she's taken a, a you know a number of steps along with her research team towards <coughs> monitoring changes in these networks over time, uh, and this is by looking at um, you know possibly sharing of design elements and ceramics or actual uh, evidence for trade and monitoring and by documenting these on a large scale. Um, we can actually look at how networks sort of expanded and contracted over time. That's one way. The other, and I think this is really just now in recent years becoming feasible, is actually looking at DNA. Yeah, um, that's what I was going to ask you. And controversial. Yeah, I, I think there's a certain level of, of controversy uh, that goes along with that, but it's, uh, I think at this point, um, I've, and I've very recently been in discussions with other archaeologists about this, um, you know, I'd say within the last five years, we've had great success at, at um, actually sequencing mitochondrial DNA, so you could actually look at potential uh, matrilineal relationships cause, because my, mitochondrial DNA follows the female line. Um, that's one way that we could track it. Um, but another is that we're actually now, it looks like, having a lot of success with ancient DNA and, and actually sequencing nuclear DNA. So we could be looking at these kinds of relationships on a really, really fine scale between groups. And, of course, this would be... A, a significant undertaking to really do it, uh, and it, it, a lot of time spent working uh, in existing museum collections. So that essentially, if you look at uh, the material cultural information uh, with a finer focus on, say, pottery styles and types and uh, proximity and uh, relative frequency of certain types of pottery from various areas that seem to have coincided and couple that with the DNA information that you'd be getting from, say, burial grounds or even isolated isolated bones that you'd be finding at specific sites, you'd be able to sort of cross-correlate a variety of different lines of evidence to get closer to the network of these relationships. Exactly. I, I think this, and that's what makes it such an exciting time uh, to be working uh, in the in the Pueblo Southwest. And so where do you see, you know, one of the questions I think that, um, and, and this is moving on a little bit uh, out, outside of Chaco, but sort of brought her into the Southwest, is to look at how closely we are able to track descendant communities from Chaco into the greater Southwest and tie the connections between the prehistoric populations and their uh, descendant communities in the tribes out in the Southwest. How close are we to establishing those connections? Um, from my, my personal perspective, I think that it's, it's a very challenging um, Pursuit, and that I do think that um, you know even what we know from the, from the historic period, from the you know the period following the Pueblo Revolt, we see a lot of population movement, um, where where Kewa groups ended up uh, moving, migrating, and, and being incorporated into First Mesa 
uh, at Hopi. Um, you have other Carecen Pueblos absorbing some of the Tana or Southern Tewa populations following um, the Reconquista, the, the rearrival of the Spanish in the Southwest following the revolt. Um, and so what I think we see there, it's um, knowing that population movement was so common and, and that we see, um, you know, the, in many ways the collapse of the Chacoan um, core um, Elite, certainly by the 1200s, but it looks like throughout the 13 and 1400s, there was quite a bit of upheaval in the Southwest with lots of populations moving in different directions. Um, and so I think that makes it very difficult to say link one particular modern day Pueblo to a place like Chaco Canyon. And certainly many right. of the modern Pueblos have oral traditions that do link them uh, back to Chaco Canyon. And, and the fact that some of those um, oral traditions are so similar, um, I think makes sense and it, and it is sort of in accordance with the archaeological record. And that is that we probably had lots of groups um, that were in some ways amalgamations of different groups that had been moving around the basin. Right. One of the issues also, of course, that's of great interest to a lot of folks is uh, mm -hmm. the structure, the social organization of Chaco Canyon. I mean, it's a sort of a very compressed area in some ways where uh, structures are preserved and uh, functional subsistence areas are, are preserved reasonably well. What are we learning that we didn't know before about social organization within the Chaco community? What was the hierarchy about? And what do we know about social organization and even religious systems? Because I know you've done some work in that area. Sure. So I, I guess I would, I would preface by saying that... Um, there's been some recent research um, that I was involved in um, in reassessing uh, the pilgrimage fair model uh, at Pueblo Alto. Um, and the argument, um, based on a reanalysis of the data, it suggests that, uh, in fact, if you normalize the number of ceramics that were deposited at Pueblo Alto with other sites, similar sites in the southwest, in fact, the numbers aren't necessarily that unusual. Uh, and so this really seemed to undercut the pilgrimage fair model. And so this prompted, um, to a large extent, a reassessment of, of our explanatory model of Chaco. If it wasn't operating strictly as a pilgrimage fair, and I don't want to downplay that too much because I do think that Chaco was almost certainly a center place uh, for, the San, for the groups around the San Juan Basin. Um, but I think what's important here is that to really understand how Chaco um, emerged in the 800s as the center that it became, uh, and then, you know, to understand what sustained it and, and then ultimately what caused its decline. I think, to your point, what we're learning right now, I think, comes from um, some uh, some very recent research. Um, the first was a re, was a, a, an analysis of um, the famous burials from Room 33 in Pueblo mm -hmm. Benito. Um, and, and those burials are probably the strongest evidence that we have for institutionalized inequality, for a hierarchy, for an elite population in Chaco Canyon. And that is because we have these 14 burials um, from Room 33, um, a room to which access was, was highly restricted. That seems clear. It was a kind of inner sanctum within the oldest part of the Pueblo. And uh, 14 burials were in that room, and the bottom two were covered over by a beautifully hewn uh, wooden floor. Um, and these, these deposits, uh, these bottom two burials, burials 13 and 14, contained um, one of probably the richest um, burial deposits that we've ever come across in the Southwest, more than 30,000 pieces of turquoise, shell, and jet. Um, and, that, and that's more than you find at, at all of the other sites in the Southwest combined. Combined, uh, yeah. So, 
it's, it's, it's very, very remarkable. Uh, and, it, and it suggests that these people carry with them a high degree of wealth and importance into the afterlife. Um, and again, that supports the idea that you that you know that you had some kind of incipient hierarchy emerging in Chaco Canyon. Um, and for the longest time, these burials were attributed to the sort of apogee of Chaco. That you actually it was expected that well, if you had leaders during any period, it must be during Classic Benito after 1040 when you see this explosion of, of great house construction and long distance trade ties. But by reassessing these important museum collections at the American Museum of Natural History, Steve Plogg and Carrie Heitman um, performed radiocarbon dating from objects within Room 33 and the individuals themselves. Um, and what was really striking was that these burials dated much earlier than anyone would have anticipated, dating to possibly even as early as the late 700s. So it suggests rather than being leaders that had emerged um, or had risen or um, during this sort of apex of Chaco. In fact, they look like they were possibly elite founders and, and perhaps venerated by the population of Pueblo Benito and maybe even Chaco, and that people um, maintained a, a collective memory of the individuals who were, who were buried in this particular room at the very bottom in the oldest part of the Pueblo. And were the burials pretty much uniform in terms of time of burial, or were there uh, burials from various time frames in Room 33? It looks like the bottom two burials um, were a pretty closely grouped. Probably they were, and they were probably contemporaries. Um, as you move up through the deposit, Room 33, you can see a sustained use of the room over the next uh, century or two. And uh, it, cha- it, it changed. Or, well, well, what I'm getting at, was this mm-hmm. a funerary site? I mean, clearly it must have been a funerary site that lasted for a period of time. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, I, I, Sure. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I see it's a very important question and, and still one that's debated. But I, um, you know, I think that there's, there's so much evidence from Pueblo Benito to, to demonstrate that people lived there over a very long period of time. Uh, certainly you have areas of the Pueblo that became restricted um, and probably fell out of habitational use. It's ah. fairly clear that there's quite a bit of day-to-day household refuse deposited in the trash mounds in front of Benito uh, and within rooms and through, really throughout the Pueblo, from basketry to bone awls that are used to make clothing, evidence of ceramic manufacture, paint production, all kinds of things that we would associate um, you know, one one difficulty with Pueblo Benito, of course, is that it was largely excavated. Um, the bulk of the rooms were excavated in the late 19th century, and so we don't have as good um, stratigraphical data as we might have if it was excavated today to look at what was going on in rooms above the ground floor. Um, so, and certainly, so we have good evidence from modern pueblos that much of the habitation um, in pueblos occurs on upper stories. Um, and so with that data loss, it's difficult to assess, say, the population of Pueblo Bonito. So the compromise of context uh, plays an important part in the difficulty in trying to synthesize this situation. Absolutely, yes. And we will be back with our final segment with uh, Dr. Adam Watson of the American Museum of Natural History right after these words. We'll be right back.
Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein with my guest, uh, Dr. Adam Watson, who is uh, an expert on Chaco Canyon in New Mexico and is doing a postdoctoral uh, stint at the American Museum of Natural History and has uh, elucidated a lot on the question of Chaco Canyon in New Mexico and the prehistoric emergence of that site as a major um, center in uh, that part of the world. Um, you were telling us a little bit, oh, just sort of scratching the surface on the significance of Room 33, the burials, and we were going to start talking about the connections between Chaco and the greater environment and the greater landscape and its communication and contact with uh, other areas. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and specifically the new dates that you're getting and the implications of those dates insofar as uh, the reach of Chaco extended? Sure. So I, I think um, I should begin by saying right around 2009, uh, Patty Crown um, came out with some new research where she actually found um, cacao or chocolate residues in uh, vessels from Pueblo Bonito, specifically these, these iconic cylinder vessels. And that really, I think, rekindled people's interest because cacao is not native uh, to the Southwest, but rather um, would have had to have been imported from Mexico, most likely. 
that really rekindled researchers' interest in these long-distance relationships between Chaco and Mesoamerica. Um, and following the recent redating of the Room 33 burials, uh, it really piqued my own interest in trying to understand, okay, so we do see um, that there is um, a pretty active uh, trade. Um, and in, in, in the case of cacao, what's so striking about it is that um, not only we have the import of this um, of, of this particular um, this this good. This, um, what we see is that we actually have similar vessels to what they're drinking uh, in Mesoamerica. So, in all likelihood, these are being prepared and consumed in a similar way. And in Mesoamerica, when we see cacao being consumed, it's often in a, a privilege of the elite. Um, and so, what's interesting is that is that this really dovetails well with this idea that maybe we have an early um, elite class within Chaco Canyon. And so. Not long after excavating room 33, George Pepper and Richard Wetherill encountered about 14 uh, scarlet macaw skeletons in room 38. So really just a stone's throw from room 33, they have this um, amazing deposit of scarlet macaws that likely came from Mexico that had been imported um, to Pueblo Benito. Wow. And at that time, what did they infer from that information? Well, at the time, this was, you know, what really set off this this notion that Chaco must have at that time been heavily influenced in, um, by um, contemporary populations in Mexico, like the Toltec. Um, of course. Uh, and of course, what's what's so interesting about it to me is that now with um, with refined uh, radiocarbon dating techniques, we can actually direct date these scarlet macaw remains. And these are actually, these are in the collections of the American Museum of Natural History. Um, and so this was provided an opportunity to actually directly assess um, sort of the when and, and over how long and, and how sustained were these contacts uh, between Chaco and Mesoamerica. And so I, now, I had, I that, that, had that idea yeah. fallen out of favor for a while because uh, you're, you're bringing up an interpretation that's, that's many, many years old? Were, uh, what was the thinking, say, over a 40, 50-year period that, that uh, there was no connection? Or how, how, did that, uh, how did that sort out? Yeah, exactly. So I think it really the idea that Chaco could only have emerged the way it did through interaction with a more, quote-unquote, sophisticated civilization, uh, although that was one of the initial hypotheses put forward, um, that, that had fallen out of favor simply because it was, um, it was so biased and that it, it detracted right. from the accomplishments of, of Native populations in North America. Uh, and since then, we've seen plenty of evidence of other similar civilizations like Cahokia um, that have really um, created very complex polities. Um, and so what's, what's interesting then um, with regard to the macaws is that we, we know that at least the natural range of macaws today is, you know, in southern Mexico, it's probably the closest to Chaco Canyon. So along the Gulf Coast, that's maybe 1,000 miles. Uh, if you're going along the Pacific Coast, it's about 1,500 miles away. That's an extremely long distance to be transporting scarlet macaws, whether Puebloan peoples are, are making um, periodic trips down to South or into Central America, or if you have traders coming up from Central America uh, to trade these. It's, it's a remarkable feat. Right, right. So, uh, so lead us through this. How, how, how does this convergence of ideas get together? So the idea here is that um, 
Well, first, um, there are different explanations for how this might have occurred. So one explanation is that maybe this was down-the-line trade. Maybe these macaws um, were being handed from one person to another and making their way all the way up from Central America into the Southwest. Wow. Um, uh, so that's one hypothesis. Another is that perhaps the membrace culture south of Chaco acted as sort of a middleman role, um, or that they were breeding macaws in Chaco, that somehow they got a hold of, of a small breeding population and were actually able to sustain this themselves. Um, and so far, um, I would say that the down-the-line trade, um, because these are such delicate animals, um, they're monogamous, they, they pair bond for life, they're, you know, even during the modern era when we, when we captured and transported macaws to market, um, they often, um, something like 40% of them wouldn't even survive the trip. So these are very delicate species. And so down-the-line trade um, didn't seem to be a very good explanation for how these macaws found their way to Chaco. Um, so we... Now, I'll leave the membrace topic uh, for just a moment later, um, but I can address the question of breeding macaws in Chaco. Um, and it looks like um, we do have a good comparative sample from Pakime where we do know that they were breeding macaws, and this is during uh, a later period of the 1400s, 1500s. And what we actually see during this period um, is that you have nestlings, juvenile macaws, or macaws at breeding age that account for about 14% of the Pakime bird population. In contrast, in Chaco, um, we only see, we see that there's only about three percent of the population that qualifies as either nestling, juvenile, or breeding age. So it looks like you know we have one good example of a breeding population. Chaco really doesn't fit that model. And finally, as far as membrace being a middleman, um, we incorporated membrace into our sampling. Um, proposal. And the idea there was that we, we could test that hypothesis by comparing those dates uh, for when macaws are showing up in membrace with those in Chaco. How did that sort out? So what we found was interesting, and, and perhaps I should digress and talk a little bit about just the importance of macaws uh, right. today and, and, and likely in the past. And that is mm-hmm. just that they're the scarlet macaws, um, their feathers, um, and color associations are of particular significance within Pueblo cosmology. Um, so we see their representations showing up in, in Kiva mural art from the 14th and 15th centuries at a number of places like Hopi and Pottery Mound. Um, we also see them pretty frequently in Pueblo pottery depictions uh, and in rock art. Um, and the Spanish expedition led by Espejo in 1582 um, also observed scarlet, scarlet macaws among the Carisan pueblos of the Rio Grande region. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess I would say that ethnographically, macaw feathers, they're, they're highly prized uh, for their ceremonial and cosmological purposes. Um, they often find their way onto prayer sticks, costumes, and masks. Uh, and, the, and in a way, these are communicating prayers to deities. Um, and so, although I'm emphasizing here the, the importance of macaws in cosmology and religion, I think it's important to stress that in Pueblo society today and likely in the past, uh, religion and social and political relations are closely intertwined. And so religious power um, is a strongly associated with sociopolitical power. Um, so, in other words, those who control these sort of key cosmological symbols also would have had significant influence over social, economic, and political relations in Chaco. Right. And so this is where I think it ties back in with the Room 33 burials. What we found is that, to our surprise, um, at least the first um, 
six um, macaws, so these are from room 38 and another two others from room 78, um, actually date to the late 800s, early 900s. So again, these aren't dating to the apogee of Chaco when we might expect this, this real Chaco in expansion, but in fact date to really the seminal, these very early periods in Chaco uh, and almost overlap with our room 33 burials. So I think the argument here is that these early elites in, in, in Pueblo Benito in particular likely in some way were controlling and managing access to these cosmologically important uh, birds. So we're starting to see essentially some kind of indications that there is some sort of exchange. Exactly. And so once you get that notion and once you start to understand that that's a critical development, what else are you picking up from uh, cross-cultural interaction and what are you seeing, in ter- what are you able to deduce in terms of networking and, and uh, commerce? So what is interesting about the dates is that, um, at least so far, uh, and when our plan is to date another 16 macaws that are held in the Smithsonian collections that were excavated by Neil Judd, but so far, the dates, uh, the way it plays out is that we see what appear to be bursts of interaction. So, it, you know, six of the macaws, the first six seem to almost overlap exactly in their dates. And then there's another batch somewhere around late 900s, early 1000s, and then a few more into the 1000s. Um, we were able to rule out, at least so far, the possibility that Membrace was the source, since their macaws date um, largely to the post-950 period. Um, right. What it tells us is that uh, very likely, there, you know, or at least our working hypothesis is that these birds are coming from from Mexico, and that perhaps these interactions are are limited um, in in scale and um, in and essentially um, in the length of time over which these interactions are occurring. So, in other words, they're happening in bursts rather than this long sustained uh, trade interaction. Well, you know, that brings up another question and probably one that you guys are just starting to get into is to whether or not periods of environmental stress are bringing about these types of bursts of interaction. That would be something that would come to my mind right away. Um, All of a sudden, there is a period of desiccation or there's a period of climatic stress or even subsistence stress, and then all of a sudden, well, there's an understanding that there are our neighbors to the south, and uh, there's a reason for us to start networking with them. Absolutely, and I, th- I think you bring up a very important point. And, and, and again, to your point, I think that um, these leaders who may have a somewhat tenuous hold on power in Chaco uh, may be utilizing, you know, differential access, preferential access to these birds as a way of, of shoring up um, their positions. Uh, especially given, given during times of, say, um, poor rainfall. And that isn't something, uh, that's something we're just beginning to grapple with at the moment, but I think it's a really intriguing um, possibility. Right. And, and, you know, we only have a couple of minutes left, but where do you see your research going? I suspect it's going in the direction of trying to uh, identify interaction spheres and try to get a, a closer fix on periods of environmental stress, periods of uh, societal interaction, and the connection between the two. Is that where we're going with this type of research? Yes, yeah, so I think that's, that's one aspect. Um, so we're, 
that's an extremely important question is to what extent do these different periods of interaction um, correlate with changes in the environment, and in particular environmental stress, um, and changes that we see in the reorganization of Chaco and Chaco and society. But I would also add that we're we're also very interested in, in trying to really run down this question of where these macaws are coming from. Uh, and so our hope here is to, by using both um, stable isotope data um, and ancient DNA to begin to try to isolate both uh, geographic region um, and per- potentially what subpopulation of macaws from which these macaws were actually extracted. So you can establish a, a, a more extensive network and try to understand this with higher levels of accuracy, I assume. Exactly. Well, I want to thank my guest, uh, Adam Watson of the American Museum of Natural History for enlightening us on recent developments in southwestern prehistory and archaeology. Thank you very much, Adam, for appearing on the program, and we look forward to advances in your research going forward. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Joe. Thanks a lot, Adam, and until next time, we will see you on another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Good evening to all. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 